0: Welcome to the Friday edition of Transformation Radio. Our reading in the New Testament today will be from the book of Acts, chapter 18, verses 1 through 22, where we'll find out about four different people. First of all, the tent maker. All Jewish rabbis had a trade because they did not charge their pupils for their lessons. Paul worked hard to support himself and his associates in their ministry. He also worked so that the unsaved could not accuse him of preaching the gospel just to make money. What sacrifices do we make today to further the gospel? We'll read about the watchman. The image is from the book of Ezekiel. As a faithful watchman, Paul warned sinners of the wrath to come, so his hands were free from their blood. And we'll read about the evangelists. Paul moved next door to the synagogue and kept witnessing. He was not one to run away from either the battlefield or the harvest field. The Lord promised, I am with you, a promise he gave to many people and still gives us today. And we'll read about the builder. Paul did not just win souls. He also built a local church by teaching the converts the word of God. In fact, he followed the commission of Matthew. After reporting to his home base in Antioch, Paul revisited some churches to build them up in the faith. And now let's begin our reading today in the New Testament. June 27th, the New Testament. Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 22. Then Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife Priscilla. They had left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all Jews from Rome. Paul lived and worked with them, for they were tent makers, just as he was. Each Sabbath found Paul at the synagogue, trying to convince the Jews and Greeks alike. And after Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia... Paul spent all his time preaching the word. He testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed and insulted him, Paul shook the dust from his clothes and said, Your blood is upon your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go preach to the Gentiles. Then he left and went to the home of Titius Justus, a Gentile who worshipped God and lived next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, and everyone in his household, believed in the Lord. Many others in Corinth also heard Paul, became believers, and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and told him, Don't be afraid, speak out, don't be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack and harm you, for many people in this city belong to me. So Paul stayed there for the next year and a half, teaching the word of God. But when Gallio became governor of Achaia, some Jews rose up together against Paul and brought him before the governor for judgment. They accused Paul of persuading people to worship God in ways that are contrary to our law. But just as Paul started to make his defense, Gallio turned to Paul's accusers and said, Listen, you Jews, if this were a case involving some wrongdoing or a serious crime, I would have a reason to accept your case." But since it is merely a question of words and names in your Jewish law, take care of it yourselves. I refuse to judge such matters. And he threw them out of the courtroom. The crowd then grabbed Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and beat him right there in the courtroom. But Gallio paid no attention. Paul stayed in Corinth for some time after that, then said goodbye to the brothers and sisters, and went to nearby Syncria. There he shaved his head according to Jewish custom, marking the end of a vow. Then he set sail for Syria, taking Priscilla and Aquila with him. They stopped first at the port of Ephesus, where Paul left the others behind. While he was there, he went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews. They asked him to stay longer, but he declined. As he left, however, he said, I will come back later, God willing. Then he set sail from Ephesus. The next stop was at the port of Caesarea. From there he went up and visited the church at Jerusalem, and then went back to Antioch. Today we're reading out of Psalm 145, verses 1 through 21. And here David extols the Lord for His greatness, and His grace, and His goodness, and His glory, and His generosity. Hey, if you're having a hard time praising the Lord today, Well, this should kind of help you get started. God's people will praise Him forever, so we need to learn to do it day by day. David extols the Lord as an encouragement to others. Members of each generation need to learn to praise the Lord, so your praise is an example and witness to them. Are others growing in their worship because of you? David hears all God's works praising him. Nature takes on new meaning and new beauty when you realize this. When you live a life of praise, you have the Lord's help in every situation. Because scripture teaches us that God inhabits the praises of his people. If you stumble, well, he helps you up. If you're hungry, he feeds you. If you call, he draws near. No wonder David blessed the Lord so much. Psalm 145, verses 1-21 through A Psalm of Praise of David I will exalt you, my God and King, and praise your name forever and ever. I will praise you every day. Yes, I will praise you forever. Great is the Lord. He is most worthy of praise. No one can measure his greatness. Let each generation tell its children of your mighty acts. Let them proclaim your power. I will meditate on your majestic, glorious splendor and your wonderful miracles. Your awe-inspiring deeds will be on every tongue. I will proclaim your greatness. Everyone will share the story of your wonderful goodness. They will sing with joy about your righteousness. The Lord is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. The Lord is good to everyone. He showers compassion on all His creation. All of your works will thank you, Lord, and your faithful followers will praise you. They will speak of the glory of your kingdom. They will give examples of your power. They will tell about your mighty deeds and about the majesty and glory of your reign. For your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. You rule throughout all generations. The Lord always keeps His promises. He is gracious in all He does. The Lord helps the fallen and lifts those bent beneath their loads. The eyes of all look to you in hope. You give them their food as they need it. When you open your hand, you satisfy the hunger and thirst of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in everything He does. He is filled with kindness. The Lord is close to all who call on Him, yes, to all who call on Him in truth. He grants the desires of those who fear Him. He hears their cries for help and rescues them. The Lord protects all those who love Him, but He destroys the wicked. I will praise the Lord, and may everyone on earth bless His holy name forever and ever. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 1. Unfriendly people care only about themselves. They lash out at common sense. Hi, this is Pastor Tom, and I love Transformation Radio.
1: The following audio is from The Refuge Church. More information about The Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.org. All right. Everybody well? Pretty good. Is this on? We good? All right. Sweet. Well, um, good morning. I guess uh, we've said it already. Seth said it, but uh, today's a bit surreal because this Sunday marks exactly a year that we we planted a year ago that we we started gathering like this. And so, in many ways, it's uh, I don't know. In many ways, it seems like it's gone really slow, and then in many ways, it seems like it's gone really fast. But. But we're really grateful to have experienced all that we've experienced. We've learned a lot very quickly. We have much, much more to learn. And so, kind of is what it is. But I think that, you know, this morning, I've been praying about, we've been, we've been in the book of Mark for about six months now, and... And I've been thinking about, like, what, what should we talk about this morning? What, what text in the Scripture would really kind of encourage us as we move forward? And, and I thought, you know, let's, let's look at the beginning of Paul's letter to the church of Philippi to really gain some encouragement, to really gain some hope. And so if you want to, go ahead and turn to Philippians 1, and we're going to be looking at verse, uh, verse 1 through 11 here, primarily. So I need to get here myself. <clears throat> So Philippians 1, verse 1, it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. From the first day until now, With knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what's excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So, real quick, I think we need to step back for just a second because we haven't been studying the book of Philippians. We need to look into the context of this book a little bit. And so, like I said, we've been in the book of Mark, which is basically a documentation of Jesus' life, the Son of God. And what we know is that is that Mark was written by John Mark, who was Peter's scribe. And so he'd follow Peter around and just document, write everything down, everything that happened. And that was written in the mid-50s AD. And Philippians was written in um, the early 60s AD. And so, so this would have been 30 some odd years after Jesus was crucified and resurrected. And it was written by the Apostle Paul. And so again, what's, what's the context? Like what was going on? Well, we know from Acts that Paul went and planted a church in Philippi. And it's documented in Acts by Dr. Luke, who is, who is basically explaining what was happening in this church plant. And Philippians is, is a letter written to that church, written by Paul, while Paul's in prison, to encourage them. So picture this. Picture Paul writing this letter as he's sitting in a jail cell to encourage this church plant in Philippi. So this is, one of the, this is one of the qualities of Paul that really amazes me, that really strikes me, because he was the worst of sinners, a persecutor of Christians, and Jesus saves him. Jesus totally changes his trajectory, right? Uh, sometimes, sometime later, he begins proclaiming the good news of Jesus, and he begins planting churches all over the place. And so the idea there really for us to start with, and we've said it before, is that if God's grace, if God's love can can save Paul, can change Paul, then certainly his grace is big enough for you and me. That his love is big enough for you and me. Because basically Paul was transformed from being an angry, murdering rabbi, murdering Jewish rabbi, to being a sacrificial, joy-filled disciple of Jesus Christ. He knew his mission. He knew his identity in Christ. So much so, he, he, he was changed so much from what he was, so much so that, that he's encouraging this church plant in Philippi while he's locked up in a jail cell, while he's in prison. And if you think about it, Paul would have had many reasons to be depressed. Paul would have had many reasons to be lonely. Paul would have had many reasons to be hopeless, to have no joy. I mean, if you think about it, Paul has no wife, no family, no kids, no home church. He's in prison, but Paul writes about his joy because of his gospel partnership with this church at Philippi. It's fascinating. Another unique thing about the book of Philippians is that all the other letters from Paul to churches, if you, you know, we studied Galatians last year. If you look at Romans, if you look at 1st and 2nd Corinthians, these these book, other books were primarily rebukes about bad doctrine or bad behavior and Paul is writing to correct them. But Philippians is different. Philippians is the only book that's marked with this kind of tone that we see, one of favor, one of encouragement. And him saying things like this in verse 8, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Because he, he feels as though he might not see them again. He, he may never get out of his jail cell. He may never step foot into their gathering again. He says, I yearn for you. I praise God for you. I'm joyful knowing that the advancement of the gospel is being brought forth. Is taking place. And what I want to do real quick is I want to look in Acts 16 and I want to see um, how Luke kind of documents some of the first conversions in the church of Philippi. And so this is Acts 16:12, and this will be on the screen. I'm going to read through verse 32. It says, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, we remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the the women who'd come together. And who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Continuing in verse 16. And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they'd inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Verse 25, about midnight, And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, and you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, to all who were in this house. So what we have in this text is the very beginning of the church in Philippi. And we have three different accounts of conversions Three different accounts of conversion. So the first person that, that it says that Paul encountered was this woman named Lydia, who was a wealthy uh, or sorry, a wealthy clothing designer who worshipped the true God. She would have been a businesswoman who's who's done well for herself. Lydia had come to believe in the one true God, so she's, she's read the Old Testament. She realizes that she's a sinner. She hasn't lived up to the requirements of the Mosaic law, the, you know, the Ten Commandments. And Paul shows up at her women's community group, right, because there aren't any Jesus-centered churches in town yet. And Paul engages Lydia's intellect. He engages Lydia's intellect, and she becomes a believer in Jesus, she gets baptized, she invites people to stay in her home, and so she becomes the first convert at the church in Philippi. Let's look at the second person, right? Verse 16 says, And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation." And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having been greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So contrast those first two, these first two conversions. This girl was the opposite of Lydia. She She was oppressed by demons. She was exploited in many ways. So Paul and Lydia, they met in a formal gathering. They met in a formal group meeting. Paul and the slave girl meet because she's following them around. She's following them around, screaming as Paul and his band of buddies are trying to do ministry. And what's interesting is his approach to both of them is so different. He doesn't invite the slave girl to a community group. He doesn't appeal to her intellect. He doesn't begin to do apologetics. He rebukes the spirit that rules in her and that's exploiting her. Matt Chandler says regarding this text: With Lydia, the gospel gets at her because when Paul, because the gospel gets at her heart because Paul engages her intellectually. With the slave girl, the gospel gets at her when Paul engages her spiritually. And if you if you can see it, what what the big idea here is that the gospel address, addresses each of their needs appropriately. It meets them where they're at, and so Jesus gives this girl exactly what she needs. She doesn't need, like I said, an apologetic breakdown of all the intellectual reasons that Christianity is true. What this slave girl needs is she needs transformed. She needs delivered. She needs healed. In the experience of her spiritual deliverance is all the proof that she needs. That Jesus is real and that Jesus is true. And then we see the third conversion. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in the house. What I want us to notice is this was kind of a sick dude, he had some issues. Because from the text, like I think it was verse 24, 23, prior to what we just read, he wasn't told to put Paul and Silas in the stocks. What are these stocks? These stocks were, they were contraptions that that were made by the Romans that would contort the body into positions that would inflict much pain. And they would leave prisoners in there for hours and sometimes days. Just in these painful contorted positions. This prisoner or this this jailer was not told to put them. It says to keep these guys safe, but put them in prison. But he puts them in these stocks, and so they're they're inflicted with much pain. And so what we know is that is that this jailer isn't particularly a nice guy. He's not a nice dude, and he, he liked his job a bit too much, right? He put these men in terrible pain for the fun of it, and then. What's crazy is you've got Paul and Silas who are praying and singing hymns in the midst of this painful and terrible situation. And so if you didn't know Jesus, if you didn't want to know Jesus, Paul would have been a terribly awful person to be around. He would, he would annoy you to death because he'd drive you crazy because he's absolutely sold out for Jesus. He's all in, even when he's in the midst of pain, even when they've stripped him of his clothes and, and, and he's in this jail cell singing to God, thanking God, praising God. And so you've got your ex-military jailer, you know, a bit rough around the edges, likes his job too much, probably finds his identity in his work. This guy's most likely not much up for intellectual conversations like Paul had with Lydia. He's probably not much for spiritualism like like the slave girl was dealing with. You know, he's not into those sorts of things, all right? This is the kind of guy that, you know, if we were to make generalizations, he works, he goes home, he drinks, he grabs a beer and he turns on the sports, right? That's this guy. That's this guy. So how does the gospel get to him? How does the gospel transform him? Well, what we see is that there's an earthquake. Jail, Jail cell doors open. He thinks everyone's escaped. His honor, his identity, possibly his very own life are at stake. So he takes his sword out and he's about to end his own life. And Paul calls out to him, do not harm yourself for we're all here. This jailer, he's blown away by this experience. He knows that these men are Christians. Why? Because of their incessant singing and praising God in the midst of the situation. And what's he say? He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. This is, this is amazing. And so this is how the church in Philippi begins. A Jewish fashionista, an ex-demonized, possessed slave girl, and a blue-collar jailer for the Roman Empire. Dream team, right? Chandler says again regarding this text, probably not exactly your dream church planning team. But the Spirit works in strange ways to utterly redeem the unlikeliest and most diverse people. Jesus takes strangers and makes them a family. So what we know, what we see in this text, and we've preached about it, what you see in this text is that the gospel is not based on shared race or economic status or class or intellect or education or gender. And this is one of my favorite quotes ever, but Don Carson says this, He says the church is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they've all been saved by Jesus Christ. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. See, what's beautiful is this is what God was doing at the church at Philippi. And I'm encouraged because this is what I see God doing here at Refuge Church. You know, we planted Refuge Church with the idea that we wanted to see this kind of transformation. We proclaim the gospel of Jesus and it meets people where they are. And so at Refuge, we have ex-cons, we have homeschoolers, we have singles, we have marrieds, we have empty nesters, we have hipster beards. God has brought an interestingly diverse crowd here. Not to mention we're meeting in a somewhat obscure party house on the fringes of Grove City, right? Right? But I, I, I honestly, I'm very grateful. My heart is full. I feel like Paul in some ways. I mean, I, I'm not even going to pretend to think I've experienced anything of the sort of persecution that he did. But I've been stretched this past year like never, like never before. And I'm humbled to, to hear the stories and talk to people and see the slow gospel work that God's doing in our hearts and in our minds. And I agree with Don Carson. In many ways, think about it, okay? In many ways, apart from Jesus, many of us would probably be enemies. Many of us would never, ever hang out together. We would never do life together, right? But because of Christ, we're family. Because of Christ, we're family. We know how we've been redeemed, we know how we've been rescued, we know how in our flesh we're sinners, we're selfish. We're stupid. But Jesus has given us hope. Jesus has welcomed us, the outcasts, into his family. He's opened up his home and welcomed us to his table. He's removed our filthy rags and he's placed his royal cloak on us. And that's insane. He redeemed all of our false ideas of truth and it's all a gift according to scripture. This is a gift all for those that would put their faith, put their hope, place their life, their dreams into his hands, into Jesus. This is good news. This is the gospel. This is what we're to proclaim. And what I want us to also remember is that the gospel is good news. It's not just it's not good advice. So often what we find in churches and often what we find in and what, what, you know, what would have made the Philippian church so much different is if Paul were to come in and do this. Because what happens is a lot of the times we're the first to be critical. So we'll look at people and we'll say, hey, man, you should be doing this or, or, or you need to fix that in your life. You should work harder. And we're even worse on ourselves. And we spiritualize it. You know, God, I'm going to get better. God, I'll work more, I need to serve more, I'll be better to my spouse, I'll I'll, I'll treat my kids nicer. And these are all good things, but often these things are void of any true worship to Jesus. Instead, we try to fix up ourselves so that somehow in fixing ourselves, we'll, we'll make Jesus happy and then we'll be able to approach him. I want to explain something to you. We, we throw this word evangelism around a lot in the church. But do you know what evangelism actually means? Do you know where the evangelism, that word, actually came from? Evangels were messengers. So back in the olden days, before Facebook and Twitter, um, once a battle was won and a king defeated an enemy, right? Huge battle. Somebody wins the battle. What would happen was is, is evangels were messengers that would, that were sent to go into the neighboring towns, to go into the neighboring communities and proclaim victory. And so they would proclaim something that already happened So it wasn't, you know, these evangelists, they wouldn't go to these neighboring towns and cities. They wouldn't say, hey, hey, everybody, tidy up your homes. Make sure you clean up because you have to do all these certain things in order to win a battle. You need to come out here and you need to help us defeat this battle. Essentially, they didn't go around just giving advice. Evangelists proclaimed the battle that had already been won. It was news, right? It was news. And so that's why as Christians, we use the word evangelism because this is what, listen to me, this is what is distinct about biblical theology from every other religion. We proclaim what's already ours in Christ. We call people to put their faith in Jesus, but he's already won, it's finished. The gospel is good news not good advice. Paul understood this. This is what enabled Paul, while in a jail cell, to joyfully exhort and encourage the church in Philippi. Because listen to me, and take, take hope in this. Paul knew that it wasn't his effort that was going to save people. Paul understood that ultimately the gospel's future didn't hinge on the success of his church planning. The opportunity of salvation in Christ is accomplished then, and it's accomplished now. And so he prays for the church, right? He prays for the church. And this applies to us today. So let's, 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 we're almost done here, but let's look at his prayer. Let's go back to Philippians 1, verses 9 through 11. He says this, and it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what's excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. There's three aspects to his prayer. First, we see the first aspect of his prayer in verse nine. What's he say? And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. Love abounding with knowledge This is an interesting picture of love, isn't it? Because if someone asked you, what what do you think of when you think of love? Knowledge probably wouldn't be the first word that comes to mind, would it? But knowledge of God is important to Paul. Good theology, what's theology? Theology is knowledge of God. Good theology will produce genuine disciples of Jesus Christ. Also, he uses the word discernment. Better knowledge of God will help us discern what's true and what's false. This will help us to disregard false notions of God and keep us as pure disciples of Jesus. You might ask, what's discernment mean? Discernment means the ability to judge well. The ability to judge well. We have to have knowledge of God to judge well. Or else we're left to our own intuitions. We're left to how we feel about life and certain things. And that's not enough. Because why? We'll deceive ourselves. We'll deceive ourselves. Secondly, in verse 10, the second aspect of his prayer says this, So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So Paul prays that this wisdom, that this knowledge about God that we have will result in moral purity. So as we grow in our knowledge of God, Paul prays that we'll be able to choose what is good over what is bad. That we'll be able to choose what is righteous over what will bring death. That we'll be able to choose what is God glorifying over what is self-glorifying. And lastly, the last thing we see in his prayer is in verse 11. He says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. To the glory and praise of God. That as a result of the knowledge and wisdom of God. And the moral living that it produces. That because of those two things, our lives would result in good fruit. That our life would produce the things that Jesus produced. Patience and love and kindness and joy and all these things. And ultimately, I love how it finishes here. And ultimately, the goal is that our lives, listen guys, that our lives would bring glory to God. That our religiousness wouldn't just... Happen so that we look better and so that we feel better and so that we make a name for ourselves and so that we can live comfortably. The goal of Christian theology, the goal of the Bible is to bring glory to God. And by bringing glory to God, we have joy. Colossians 1 28 and 29 says this Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is Colossians. Paul wrote this as well. This is what maturity in Christ is. That we go from takers to sacrificial givers. That we go from always trying to be given wisdom to pursuing the wisdom of God ourselves. Paul prays in our text today that, listen, and this is on the screen. This is the big idea of his prayer. He prays that one, our love would result in the knowledge of God. And that two, that knowledge would result in morally pure living. And that three, those two things would pr- would produce fruit to the glory of God. Some of you might be, what's fruit? Well, a healthy tree produces fruit. A dead tree produces nothing. And the idea... The Bible uses the metaphor of fruit to correlate to Christ likeness in our lives. So if we're truly found in Christ, then over time, we will produce the character qualities of Jesus. If we're not, then we won't. So what that looks like is, am I becoming more selfless? Am I becoming more sacrificial? Am I becoming more humble? Am I becoming more pure? Am I becoming more loving? Am I becoming more generous? Am I becoming these things? Or am I just this selfish, egotistical, narcissistic, self-loving person that I've always been? The fruit of Jesus is not that. This is Christian maturity. This is what we struggle and we toil and we exude energy for, along with Paul, as he says in Colossians. This, this is my calling as one of your pastors, that, that as a church, we would, we would train and we would teach and we would, we would invest in things that would produce mature Christians, as Colossians one twenty eight said. And that as a result... We become a group of natural enemies, diverse all across the board, that loves one another for the sake of the gospel. So this is going to be our journey moving forward. This is our mission. This is where we're headed. And so I encourage you to join us, to grow with us, to learn with us, to strive with us towards this end. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your grace in our lives that, that we would, that that there's those in this room, again, that are struggling to, to know you, that have never, you know, we've disregarded you without really knowing what we're disregarding. We've been to church a few times, and so we think we've heard the gist, we've heard the the story, we've heard it, and and that's not for us. And God, I just pray that we would approach you anew. We'd approach you afresh. That God, we'd realize that maybe a lot of the ways that we think about God aren't true. And I just pray that you would humble us. I pray that for those that have not been seeking you and that that's resulted in not moral living. Why? Because we don't know what you say about it. And so we just go with what we feel. And as a result, there's not good fruit in our life. I just pray that we would pursue you, Jesus, knowing that that's, what's going to transform us. That we wouldn't just try this self salvation thing where we just try to be better and we try to do good. God, those things aren't bad, but many times they're void of true worship. I just pray that we would pursue you, Jesus that we'd look in your word, that we'd see what you say about life, and that, God, we would give ourselves to you. We love you and we praise you. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from The Refuge Church in Grove City, Ohio. For more information about The Refuge Church, please visit therefugechurch.org. And that'll do it for today's podcast. Everyone have a safe and blessed weekend, and make sure to tune in next time to Transformation Radio.